0: Welcome to Antioch. We are a multi-generational, justice-minded church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the Word of God turn your heart toward Christ and the world He loves. As we move from gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word
1: of the Lord. Thanks Thanks, Charlene. More church. Good to see you all today. Glad that you're with us. During this season of Lent, we are in the Gospel of John, and we are looking at some of the key moments in Christ's life and ministry. So if you're with us, last week we were at the wedding in Cana, where Jesus performed his first miracle, transforming the water into wine. And this week we are picking up right where we left off, in John 2. And so what we find is the very next event that happens after the miracle of Cana is Jesus clearing out the temple in Jerusalem. And what's interesting is that this is one of the very few events that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. Um, But what you'll notice is that in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this event of Jesus clearing out the temple takes place towards the very end of his life in ministry. It actually happens during Holy Week, the day after Palm Sunday, just a few days before Jesus would die. But in John's Gospel, Jesus clearing the temple happens at the beginning of his ministry, right after he does his first miracle. So a little bit of a confusing thing, and it makes you ask, well, who was right? Um, did it happen at the beginning or at the end of Jesus' ministry? And what you need to know is that Bible scholars have basically kind of taken two different paths in trying to answer that. The first is, well, maybe this kind of thing happened more than once. Maybe a similar situation occurred both at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and then again at the end. And so we're getting two different accounts. And that's one possibility. The other possibility is that John, as he writes his gospel is more interested in theology than chronology. And that he maybe takes a little bit of creative liberty with the timeline because he's trying to draw out the theological significance of the events. And so John really in this theory is like an artist. And the way a painter would use contrast in order to create a more vivid image, John likes the position of Jesus cleaning the temple immediately following uh, Jesus turning water to wine. And so um, that's one of the theories. So all that to say, whether these are separate incidents or it's the same one just reported at a different time, in either either case, in John's gospel, Jesus goes from the wedding at Cana to the temple in Jerusalem. And the contrast is striking. Because in Cana, Jesus makes wine, In the temple, Jesus makes a whip. (laughs) In Cana, Jesus shows up and keeps the party going. And in the temple, Jesus shows up and shuts everything down. A very, very interesting contrast. So, let's uh, start by looking at the setting of this story in John's Gospel, chapter 2, starting in verse 13. He writes, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Okay, so this is our setting. The Passover feast, as we know, is the most significant event in Jewish life every year. The Hebrew people would travel from all over the ancient world, make their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where all of the Passover festivities took place. And so being an observant Jew himself, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And in the center of Jerusalem was the Great Temple, which was not only a sacred religious site, but it was also the social, political, and cultural hub of Jewish society. So the temple was the holy place where God had promised that his presence would dwell among his people. And it was also the focal point of all Jewish life. And so every year, as hundreds of thousands of Jewish people are traveling from all over the, the known world to Jerusalem. Part of what they would do is go to the temple where they would worship and offer sacrifices to God. And so when Jesus shows up, we're told that he sees that there's people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and that there's other people sitting at tables changing money. And here's the reason that was happening. If you were going to offer an animal sacrifice at the temple, the animal had to be flawless. So the temple priests, before you would sacrifice it, would carefully inspect every single animal that was brought to make sure that it didn't have any cuts or scrapes or bugs or blemishes of any kind, okay? So it was hard to come across a flawless animal. And it was especially hard if you were traveling to Jerusalem from five, 10, 15, 20 days of traveling away. So like, you know how hard it is to travel with little kids Right, You've got their diapers and their bottles and their food, and you're constantly trying to keep them happy or get them to sleep. Well, imagine doing that, and you've got a goat or like a pigeon that you need to take care of. That would make the road trip even a little bit more complicated. And so what John tells us is there's people there at the temple uh, selling animals for travelers that they could use as sacrificial animals, which is a very nice service. Okay? And then secondly, he says that there's money changers. And they're there just because, like when we travel to other places in the world today that use a different currency than we do, when you land in the airport at some other country, you can take your U.S. dollars and exchange them for whatever the local cash is. Okay? So the same thing happened there. When you went to the temple, there was a certain kind of currency that needed to be used, and so you would bring your foreign currency, you would trade it, they would give you the local currency, and then you could buy your sacrifices or offerings or whatever else you needed to. So when Jesus shows up at the temple, that's what he finds. Animals for sale and Money exchange tables. Okay, that's the setting. Then in verse 15, really without much warning or explanation, here's what happens Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Striking. So obviously, Jesus isn't exactly thrilled with the scene he finds at the temple. But it's interesting that John doesn't really give us a whole lot of what's going on in Jesus' mind. In fact, the only thing that John tells us is that Jesus is what Jesus says, which is, you're turning my father's house into a market. Now, this is one of the other things that sets John's telling of this account apart from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus accuses those uh, that are at the temple of uh, turning it into a den of thieves or a den of robbers. Okay, And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he accuses the merchants and the money changers most likely of price gouging. Right and raising the prices on the products that they're selling and taking advantage of the worshipers, which would have been especially detrimental to foreigners, those that were coming from other areas, and to the poor, obviously, who don't have the financial means. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus condemning them as making this a house of robbers. But John doesn't mention that in his gospel. He doesn't call anyone a thief or accuse anyone of taking advantage of others. All he tells us, all John tells us, is that Jesus is upset that they've turned the temple into a place of commerce instead of a place of worship. Okay? So I know this is hard to imagine, but there was a time when some people saw worship as an industry, I know it's really hard to believe, but there were people who used religion as a way of profiting off of others. Can you imagine such a thing? So what does Jesus do? Well, he makes quite the scene. He starts flipping tables over. He's scattering money everywhere. He uses a whip to drive out all the animals and it's a total disruption, okay? Imagine if we were here worshiping this morning and somebody comes in yelling and screaming, kicking chairs over, flipping the communion table over, throwing things around. We couldn't just like ignore that and keep going, right? What would we do? I mean, we'd call the police. We'd try to restrain this guy until the cops showed up. This is not the kind of thing you can just ignore. And so this is the scene that Jesus is making, he is disrupting these people's sacred time of worship. And he's, he's making it a really, really big deal. Okay, by the way, you know how uh, everybody's saying AI is going to take all of our jobs? Well, I know some pastors that are worried about that too, because apparently chat GBT can write a pretty good sermon. Um, (Laughter) Let me tell you why I'm not worried about this yet, because recently somebody uh, asked AI to make an image of Jesus flipping over tables. And here's what it came up with. (laughs) (laughs) So technically it's not wrong, but I don't think that's quite how it went down. So it's nice, my job is safe, at least for now. So Jesus isn't doing backflips, but he is causing a huge commotion. And people are ducking for cover under chairs. Parents are gathering their kids. Temple authorities are closing in. People are, are kind of freaked out. And this is Jesus. The same Jesus who just a few days ago turned water into wine to spare a young couple from a life of shame. This is the same Jesus who taught us to love our enemies, to turn to the other cheek, to forgive everyone who sins against us, to wash each other's feet. So what's going on here? Is Jesus having a mental break? Or is he really so Angry about the money traders and the animal sellers that he just loses his temple temp, temper <laughs> and freaks out? What's going on here? So let's talk about this for a moment. Because throughout the years, lots of different Christians have used this event to try to justify violence done in the name of Jesus. And they say, look, Jesus wasn't some sissy, Mr. Nice Guy. Jesus was a manly man who knew how to handle himself. And when things got rough, he wasn't afraid to throw down. So sometimes, they say, when the situation calls for it, Christians have to do whatever it takes in order to defend our faith or defend our families. I don't know if you've heard someone say something like that before. I don't recommend spending a lot of time on Christian Twitter, but if you do, anytime there's a conversation about loving our enemies, somebody is always gonna say, but yeah, what about Jesus at the temple, pulling out a whip and flipping over tables? So, it's a good question. A couple things that we need to know. The first is that yes, this is a picture of the real Jesus. And that we as Christians want to follow him and be like him in every way we possibly can, including what we see here in the temple. But the picture of Christ in the temple doesn't negate or overrule all the other pictures of Christ that we have as well, they have to be harmonized. And when we can't figure out how to harmonize the various pictures of Jesus, and we need to choose one image of Jesus to focus on, this clearly isn't the moment that Jesus meant to define his life and character. Yes, it is something that happened, and it is good, and it is right, and it is holy. But if we want the clearest picture of who Jesus really is, then all throughout the scripture, in a million different ways, we're told that there's only one place we need to look. And where's that? It's the cross. If you want to see who Jesus really is and what Jesus is really like, the clearest picture we have is on the cross. And when we look at the cross, what we see is a man dying for people who hate him. So when you're unable to harmonize different aspects of who Christ is, go to the cross. And that's the clearest picture. So that's the first thing I would say. The second is this. Jesus doesn't cause any human, any physical harm in this story. He does have a whip, but he's not using it on people, okay? So this event, again, recorded in all four Gospels, John is the only one that mentions the whip, and John is also the only one that mentions the animals, okay? That's important. Look again at verse 15. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts. So who did he drive from the temple courts? Both sheep and cattle. Okay? So Jesus isn't using the whip to hurt people. He's using it to herd animals. So Jesus never does violence to a single human life. And I know that not all believers hold to a position of Christian nonviolence, but for those who do, there's a difference between using force and using violence. And to those Christians who think that there are situations where the most Christ-like thing to do would be to harm another human, they need to understand that the options aren't either use violence or roll over and do nothing at all. Jesus shows us that there's a third way, and that is that you can use physical force without using violence. Jesus doesn't hurt people. And here's the last thing I'll say about this. Where did Jesus get this whip anyways? Well, what does verse 15 say? So he made a whip out of cords. How interesting. He doesn't just find it or take it from some shepherd. He makes it. I don't know that much about making whips. (laughs) I would imagine it takes a little bit of time Here's what that tells me. That this protest is a deliberate, strategic act on Jesus' part. This isn't an impulsive reaction. This wasn't a spontaneous outburst of anger that Jesus was embarrassed about the next day, right? He's not throwing a temple tantrum. (laughs) I'm sorry. That... Let's cut that from the (laughs) video. No, what Jesus did in the temple was a planned prophetic protest. So if if we want to understand what Jesus is doing here, then we need to remember that one of the roles or offices that Jesus holds while he's here on earth is that of a Hebrew prophet. 16 times in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is a prophet And he's part of a tradition of Hebrew prophets that goes way, way back. Okay, So to really make sense of what Jesus is doing here, we need to go back about 600 years to the time of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 7, what we find is an account that sounds strangely similar to John chapter 2. In fact, it's where the phrase den of robbers originally shows up. And what you find is that Jeremiah 7 also takes place at the temple, but it's the original temple that Solomon built a thousand years before Christ. And about 400 years after the temple was built, that temple would be destroyed by the Babylonians. And in Jeremiah 7, just a few years before the original temple was destroyed, God sends a prophet named Jeremiah to the temple to stage a public protest. So let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, that's the temple, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. So God sends the prophet Jeremiah to the temple to warn the people that if they want to save themselves from destruction, then they have to reform their ways and their actions. Okay, So God isn't happy about what's happening in the temple, so he gives Jeremiah this message to take to them. And what is it that God wants them to reform? Well, read on in verse 5. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. So here's what's interesting. The message that God gives his people through Jeremiah is essentially this, that you come into my temple and you pray your prayers and you sing your songs, you give your offerings and you make your sacrifices, but then you go out and you live a life that's totally opposed to everything that I'm about. He says the problem is that who they were and what they did at the temple didn't line up with who they were and what they did the rest of the week. So they're worshiping God on Sundays, so to speak, but then they're living like hell Monday through Saturday. This is the message that God gives to Jeremiah and says, I want you to go to the temple in the middle of the day when it's full of worshipers And I want you to stand up on a table and get out your megaphone and stage a disruptive, prophetic protest against their sin and hypocrisy. And so that's what Jeremiah does. And what specifically is he protesting? We're told three things in those verses. That they are oppressing the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. The immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. Number two, they're using violence to shed innocent blood. And number three, they are following other gods to their own harm. And he sums all of this up at the beginning by saying that they are failing to live lives of justice. They're doing all this religious ritual at the temple, but then they're going out and ignoring and mistreating the least of these. So this is what Jeremiah is calling out. Because worship and justice are supposed to go hand in hand. If you're worshiping God on Sunday, but then failing to care for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant Monday through Saturday, you're doing it wrong. And God's not happy about it. So he sends Jeremiah to warn the people that if they don't repent and change their ways soon, it's going to mean their destruction. But they don't, and a few years later, as we know, the Babylonians come in and they destroy the temple. Okay, all of that went down 600 years before the time of Christ. And now in John 2, Jesus shows up at the exact same plot of land where Jeremiah once stood, But now the temple isn't the original one that was built by Solomon. That one was destroyed. There's now a temple that's been rebuilt or is being rebuilt by Herod the Great. And it's in the exact same spot. And so Jesus shows up in this same place as Jeremiah. And he stands up and stages this prophetic protest just like Jeremiah had 600 years earlier. And the Jewish priests and scribes that were there in the temple that day would have known exactly what Jesus was doing. They knew the Hebrew scriptures. They knew the prophets. They knew that Jesus was doing the Jeremiah thing. He was playing the role of a Hebrew prophet. And so... Again, what Jesus does here in John 2 isn't impulsive. It was planned. It wasn't an outburst of uncontrolled anger. It was a creative, deliberate, prophetic act. And Jesus, as a prophet, is warning the people of God that either they better change their ways or something bad is going to happen. And sure enough, 40 years after this time in the year 70 A.D., the temple is destroyed again. That's what Jesus is doing in John 2. And again, the Jewish leaders would have gotten this. They would have understood the message and what he was saying. So their question for Jesus isn't, what are you talking about? Their question was, who are you? And why should we listen to you? That's what they ask in verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? So they're like, if you really are a prophet sent from God, then prove it to us. Give us some sort of sign so we can know that you're a true prophet. Here's how Jesus responds in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? They ask for a sign, Jesus says, okay, I'll give you a sign to show you who I am. Destroy the temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they all bust out laughing, right? What kind of lunatic is this guy? It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you say you can rebuild it in three days? Okay, Mr. Prophet, good luck with that. Here's what they were missing. They assumed that the temple Jesus was talking about was the building where they were standing. Herod's temple. But that's not the temple Jesus was talking about. In verse 21, John tells us, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. What they didn't get was that Herod's temple Just like Solomon's before it was never supposed to be permanent. In fact, if you remember, God didn't ever really want a temple in the first place. The Israelites, way back earlier in the story, were like, God, everybody else has a temple. Why can't we have one? We just want to be like the cool kids. And God is like, okay, you can have a temple. And in his grace, he promises that his presence will dwell there with them. But that's never the master plan. See, this temple that was made of stone was just a temporary solution until God's true temple, a temple made of flesh and blood, would arrive. And so what John is doing in his account of this event is saying that the temple of Herod has now been replaced by the body of Jesus. He's saying that Jesus himself is now the place where God's presence dwells on earth. Jesus' body is the new temple of God. And so when the Jewish leaders ask for a sign to prove his credentials, Jesus tells them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple But he was talking about the new temple, his body. And very soon, they would destroy it. And very soon, three days later, it would be raised. John gives us a little flash forward in verse 22. After Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken interesting. Jesus' disciples apparently didn't get it at the time. But later on, after he rose from the dead, then they remembered what he had said and they believed in him. So this scene at the temple, Jesus stages a prophetic protest against the religious leaders because they had turned Worship into a profitable industry for the rich instead of a prophetic ministry for the poor. Worship and justice should always go hand in hand. You can go to Israel today and you can see the remains of the temple, but that's not the true temple anymore. The true temple is the body of Christ. And in the Bible, the body of Christ isn't just one thing, it's three things. First, it's Jesus' physical human body that was nailed to the cross and raised from the grave. But secondly, the body of Christ is the bread that we take and eat when we come to the Lord's table. When you come down in a moment, you'll be offered bread, and you'll hear the body of Christ. And third, the body of Christ is the church. We are his body in the world. When Jesus ascended back to the Father, he took his spirit and gave it to his church. And so now the same spirit that lived in Jesus and empowered him lives in us and empowers us. And so we now, as the body of Christ, have become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so if we are a temple, then we would probably do well to ask, God, what do you want to clear out in my life? Where is my hypocrisy? How am I living Monday through Saturday in a way that doesn't line up with my worship on Sunday? Antioch, as an expression of the body of Christ and a temple where his presence dwells, may our worship always lead us to love God and to do justice in the name of Jesus. Amen.